there, and welcome to the Cranberry Chronicles, a podcast where we'll be discussing all things cranberries, including where they come from, why we love them, and how they love us back. We'll be delivering a fresh science-based perspective on health, wellness, and nutrition trends translated into a language we can all use. We're so excited to be sitting down with a variety of food, health, and industry experts for in-depth conversations that we hope will enhance the work you do and that it will also inspire you to live a healthier life. So whether you're a registered dietitian, a health professional, wellness enthusiast, or just a cranberry connoisseur, we welcome you. I'm your host, Bonnie Taub Dix. I'm a registered dietitian, media personality, and a media trainer for RDs and wellness professionals. As dietitians, we all know that cranberries can bring benefits, and today we are going to shine a light on the important role they play in helping to keep your microbiome happy, which inevitably could lead us to better physical and emotional health. I'd like to welcome our special guest, Dr. Amy Howell, Associate Research Scientist at the Marucci Center for Blueberry and Cranberry Research. Amy is going to enlighten us on the importance of gut health and the role cranberries play in keeping your gut healthy. Amy has a background in plant science and pathology, and her program targets utilizing cranberry for prevention and management of bacterial diseases, including urinary tract infections, which we know as UTIs, stomach ulcers, and periodontal disease. Welcome, Amy. It's great to meet you. Oh, well, thank you, Bonnie. I'm really happy to be here today. And I'm speaking to you from the heart of the New Jersey Pine Barrens. I have been, as you said, a research scientist for quite a, quite a few decades here. I just love uh, cranberries, blueberries, all of these berries that we grow right here in the heart of New Jersey. And they are, a lot of people don't know, but they are actually native to North America and along with Concord grapes. So I really feel like I'm kind of contributing, you know, to the folklore of our country and, and how these foods actually got started right here in the good old USA, right where I'm sitting. You know, we can, we can utilize them uh, for health benefits. I actually didn't know that about cranberries. I knew that about grapes, but not about cranberries. Is living there something that drove your interest in, uh, in the science of cranberries? Well, interestingly, I'm actually a Southern California girl from La Jolla, California, <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a transplant back here. I came back uh, because I got a job uh, at Rutgers um, initially in uh, pathology, and we were going to start breeding cranberries that have uh, better health benefits and better uh, yield, things like that. And I got a call from the dean one day who said, oh, no, I think we've changed your mind about what you're going to do. You're going to isolate the compounds that prevent urinary tract infections. And I sort of sat there on the phone for a minute and, uh, you know, thought, how in the world am I going to do this? Well, I went and uh, got some additional training at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy from a man named uh, Dr. Ara DeMartirosian. And I heard him act on a broadcast on the radio driving home one day thinking, how in the world am I going <laughs> to figure this all out? And so that's kind of how it got started. I did a postdoctoral fellowship there in natural products chemistry. So now I have uh, quite a wide variety of, of things that I'm sort of capable of doing uh, in this arena. And I think that's what makes it so interesting for me because I am trained in a number of different areas and I love it. 
Wow. I, you know, see, you never know where you get started and what actually lights that fire in us. You know, cranberries have really been kind of typecast for Thanksgiving. I think when we think of whole cranberries, that's what we think about. But we know that besides urinary tract infections, that there are so many benefits that we get from eating cranberries. Could you just tell us a few other benefits? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I always get, oh, they're, they cure urinary tract infections. Well, they don't, they don't cure them. They prevent them. I should say that right off the bat, because that's a big misconception. A lot of people have, um, there are really very few foods, uh, fruits, vegetables, things like that, that actually can cure diseases. So if you ever hear that, always put up a red flag. Um, usually they participate in some way in an infection process and, reduce or enhance something that helps to alleviate um, some of the symptoms of the infection or prevent it before it even gets started. So I think that's important to note for sure. You know, that's, that's important when it comes to pretty much most foods. I think a lot of people think that they could just, you know, dose themselves with something once they get a symptom, uh, a negative symptom, but actually that's not the case. I mean, what we'll hear more about later, of course, which is exactly what you're talking about is how the, the patterns in which we eat and the, the meals that we eat, it's not any one particular magic bullet food, but that you also shouldn't wait until something's wrong to try a food that could have benefits. So I totally agree with you. I'm sure all the dietitians listening would agree as well. Absolutely. And, you know, there are lots of side effects to pharmaceutical drugs, especially antibiotics, which I'm very passionate about reducing the use of antibiotics. And this is where cranberry really fits in because it has this whole body benefit by preventing the bacteria from attaching to cells in the body, certain cells in the body. And it appears to work luckily for us against the bad bacteria. So the, the infectious bacteria that cause UTIs, the E. coli, uropathogenic, also against H. pylori or helicobacter pylori that are a major cause of stomach ulcers, as well as some oral cavity benefits in preventing a coaggregation of bacteria in, in the mouth. So very, very interesting bacterial anti-adhesion where again, you're you're interrupting a step in the initial infection process. So it's, it's doesn't kill the bacteria like an antibiotic would it, the bacteria remain alive. So you're not building up these resistant populations uh, that are going to make you uh, build up resistance to cranberry. So it's great, but it it's a little bit like, you know, Buzz Lightyear saying, you know, to the bladder and beyond, <laughs> you, you really, <laughs> can kind of look at cranberry as as a really beneficial thing. There's a lot of research also on a reduction of risk factors for heart disease when you consume cranberry daily. So when you do it, you're not just going after one of these things, you're getting really a whole spectrum of, of benefits. And it, it, you know, not that we want to knock out other foods from our diet that do have some health benefit, but the idea here is to sort of use cranberry and replace, you know, the, some of these less appealing things with sugary soft drinks and things that can really harm our health. We have this competition for stomach space. So let's, let's try and choose foods that have a health functionality if we can. Wow. So you have mentioned a few things that I really have a lot of questions about. 
you said something about the mouth, something about the stomach, and then something about the gut and the question of the microbiome. Now, it seems almost like words like microbiome, gut health, like this has become so buzzworthy. And you know what it makes me think about as someone who has also been in this profession for decades is we know that this stuff existed for years. Why all of a sudden has gut health become so buzzworthy? And could you even just like explain the difference between microbiome and the gut? Mm-hmm, sure. Well, in other countries, especially in Europe, places like Germany, uh, the gut health has been a lot more focused in their society. And they have uh, lots of preparations found in in drugstores and even in supermarkets that are designed for gut health. And, and if you look back in the literature, a lot of the original studies have come out of Europe. And we're just sort of catching on here in the U.S. Uh, because we, we really are starting to have um, an antibiotic resistance problem. And the gut is, of course, so important because when we take an antibiotic, we get an infection, a bacterial infection, and we're prescribed these we sort of take them inadvertently thinking, oh, we have a cold and some doctors are still handing them out very freely. And the problem is, is that it destroys all of the good bacteria in our gut in many cases. So without that, and those gut bacteria are called probiotics or, or good bacteria. When those are destroyed, it really interferes tremendously with our overall health and especially our digestion. So when you take food in, um, it is it is entering your mouth, which is the start of what we call the gut, and and enzymes are released, amylase enzymes breaks, starches down, things like that. Th- this chemistry is beginning immediately. Things will will even bind to the gut lining up in your esophagus before it even gets down to your stomach. So the the gut is really defined as going from the mouth to the anus, if you will. The the microbiome is really the GI tract, which which is in permanent contact with this with these probiotic and other types of bacteria. So. The microbiome is the sum total of this bacterial population, if you will, that lives within the gut and performs these vital functions of of breaking food down. Without without that good population of probiotics, it's really, really tough for us to get some of the benefits of these foods like cranberry. If you don't have good, good probiotic bacteria, the food tends to take the Southern route, if you will, and avoid, <laughs> avoid uh, a lot of metabolic breakdown. And, um, it, it is just excreted in your feces. So we don't get the benefit of a lot of these things, uh, beyond basic nutrition. And, and I know that there also are a lot of foods that could actually harm your gut and medications, of course, as well, like you mentioned, antibiotics, um, can can we talk just a little bit about foods that may be harming your gut and maybe what even some of the signs might be that someone may not realize that they're having a problem? Yeah, yeah, there, there's, there's a thing in the gut. Well, first of all, let me say that the gut is incredibly delicate. If you look at it, it's, it's basically one cell thick down there. And uh, when you put something 
into your oral cavity, into your mouth, and you swallow it, uh, all kinds of things, as I said, are going on. But this gut lining is the first point of contact for anything that goes into our mouth, whether it be really good foods, whether it be toxins, whether it be alcohol, all of these things, this is the first point of contact. And our body has to decide whether these, these foods and beverages and toxins and different things are good or bad for us. So this is the, the immune system layers are literally right under this one cell thick mucosa that lines our gut. That's where the decisions are made with what to do with these things, whether we need to mount an immune response against them or whether they're allowed to go on their merry way and produce metabolites and all that. So it's a little bit like, you know, Ellis Island, here come all these things across to Ellis Island. And we decide whether, where you go and what you do. And it, it really has an important function when we look at how important the integrity of this gut lining is, it's replaced constantly, by the way, because there are many errors that can occur genetically in our gut lining. So you, you really constantly have to replace it, but it can be weakened by certain things. Of course, stress being at the top of the list. If you look at your, your gut lining and you look at stress, your gut lining can be looked at like your like the, the tile on your backsplash in your kitchen, you've got tile and then you've got things holding the tile together. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a brickwork down there. And if that glue holding the tiles together begins to degrade, uh, the tiles will open up and allow things to go through. And that's kind of the, the metaphor for what's going on in your gut. Uh, when you get a thing called leaky gut syndrome, or you get a dysbiosis it's called where things are, are not looked at correctly. Things are leaking through into your immune system and your immune system is flaring up. So this can happen with stress, um, intense levels of stress. Also, if you eat a lot of refined sugar, uh, this can happen and it just weakens that gut barrier function, as we call it, allowing things to go through. And it just sets up this, this horrible inflammatory response that leads to other problems with our health. So it's incredibly important that we pay attention to our gut because it can influence so much more about our health. You know, talking about influencing, I think that we also have to be careful ourselves and what we tell our clients because media headlines also influence people very much. And I think, you know, you mentioned alcohol, also sugary beverages. I know I've seen stories that say that highly processed foods could really harm your gut. And then people take that as meaning processed food. And it's not processed food. You know, unless you wake up in the morning and you're chewing on a stalk of wheat, if you eat a piece of whole grain bread, that's processed, but it doesn't mean it's bad. And red meat and artificial sweeteners and fried foods, but it's not just these individual things. If you just cut out artificial sweeteners from your diet, and you eat all of these other sugary beverages and highly processed food, then you're not going to, going to necessarily put yourself in a healthy place. So I think that I know that you agree that it's the combination of these foods and just habits. Having healthier habits could really make a huge impact on the way that your gut feels and how it helps you feel. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, the these negative impact foods and substances and states that we get ourselves into 
They do. They sort of snowball. And once you get one thing happening, like if you're stressed, you may drink more alcohol, which can exacerbate the problem. And, you know, then you, you also, if you don't take care of your teeth, then you can get bacterial issues going into your bloodstream, causing problems. You know, you really have to take a holistic approach to, to your, your gut as having your oral cavity be part of it because your teeth are so important and the bacteria that can, can cause things like periodontal disease also have a very, very big influence on gut integrity and uh, dysbiosis in our guts. So we want to really sort of take really good care of ourselves, brush our teeth every day, floss, you know, have a, a good clean diet and try and reduce that stress level. And, you know, that's <laughs> I, I can't stress it more. You also spoke about things that could potentially uh, help when we take foods in that have a, a prebiotic effect. These are the foods that can help to feed the probiotic bacteria, the good bacteria that are in our guts. And we really do want to include some of those food sources. If we look at our gut as a terrarium where that we have a population of bacteria down there that are doing all this good stuff for us, uh, we have to feed it and we have to feed it with the right kinds of foods uh, so that it grows well. Some prebiotic things are, are mainly fiber components and chicory root is one that you'll see added to a lot of foods. There are fiber components in the skins of fruits and vegetables that uh, have prebiotic benefit. So we want to think about all of this when we design a, a diet that is going to improve our gut health. You talk about dysbiosis. And to me, when I think about dysbiosis, I kind of think of imbalance. Like that's the first word that I think about is imbalance. Is that correct? Like when the, the gut flora contains too many harmful bacteria, not enough friendly bacteria, and that imbalance occurs, is that a correct way to think about it or just a very simplistic way to think about it? Yeah. I mean, it is. It Gut dysbiosis is really, it, it occurs when the bacteria in your gut or your GI tract become unbalanced and you're, you know, from these exposure to whether it be stress, things like that, but drugs, toxins, um, other components can really have a problem, you know, with your gut and pathogens also any sort of, of pathogen that you get down there will affect and, and influence gut dysbiosis. If you take antibiotics, of course, you're setting up a huge issue with having no real good probiotic or very few and killing off that whole population. So, and as you said, you know, ingesting junk food, drinking too much alcohol and, you know, accidentally ingesting harmful, harmful toxic chemicals can also cause a dysbiosis quite, quite readily. <laughs> you know, you mentioned um, antibiotics and it makes me think about supplements and I have a question that I have asked many, many times. I'm usually the one in the audience that raises my hand whenever there's a talk on the microbiome to ask the same question, even though I kind of know I'm always getting the same answer, but I'm asking you anyway, taking advantage of this opportunity. So if you're going to buy a probiotic supplement, 
how do you know which one to choose? There are so many on the market. There, the aisle of probiotics is growing faster than perhaps the bacteria within the microbiome itself. So how do you know what to choose? Yeah. I mean, this is a question I get a lot. And I know that many consumers are, are super interested in trying to find something that's going to correct this dysbiosis. Really, honestly, I can't recommend probiotics in general. I think because there, there are several things, there's a whole body of research on probiotics. It's really, really hard to maintain those bacterial populations with probiotics because there, there are so many factors involved and so many differences within people's microbiomes, if you will, or, or framework of what probiotics they have in their guts. It can be based on race, location, the foods that we eat, the stress levels we have. So trying to design a probiotic that's going to be good for all is really next to impossible. So your, your better bet is to eat the foods, the prebiotics and a good solid diet, um, of course, including things like cranberries because cranberries have the prebiotic fiber in their skin. And then they have a lot of other nutrients and what we call phyto or plant chemicals that can benefit health um, once they're consumed. So my recommendation is eat the prebiotics, eat the good food, and you will produce metabolites that will really, really be much more beneficial to helping dysbiosis than any probiotic would. I cannot say I'm surprised at that answer. <laughs> and thank you for that answer, but I thought I'd ask it anyway. And speaking of cranberries, just as a reminder, you could find a wealth of information and mouthwatering recipes by visiting cranberryinstitute.org. And please follow them on Instagram at cranberryinstitute so that we could continue the conversation way beyond this podcast. So, you know, something that you mentioned before, you mentioned H. pylori. And I think that this is another area. I know you are very interested in it. And I think that a lot of people don't necessarily think about the connection between cranberry and H. pylori and how cranberry might actually suppress H. pylori. So could you could talk a little bit about the prevalence, maybe what it is and why it's important to manage it? Yeah. Well, Helicobacter pylori is one of those bacteria that it it is it has been in our world for many 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 moons if you will you can go back literally thousands of years and find h pylori in the guts of people they find in ice flows and i mean these things have been around they've evolved with us in a sense um the interesting thing about h pylori is that it can have some benefit under the right circumstances for certain allergies and things like this, but it that is way outweighed by the negative consequences of H. pylori infection in, in our stomachs. The prevalence of this is like two-thirds of the world's population is basically infected with this bacteria. I mean, it's staggering. And usually it comes in as a child, often in the first you know, 10 days of life, uh, it's passed from the mother to the baby through the mouth. And you also can get H. pylori from kissing because it is orally transmitted. Uh, oh, so I if you no know about that one, <laughs> <laughs> you know, somebody, you know, of course they, they lead to stomach ulcers oftentimes <laughs> this bacteria. And so if you know somebody with an ulcer, you know, you might want to have them get treated before you, you start kissing them. 
So that's that's the big problem with H. pylori is there's so much of the human population is infected with it, especially in developing countries where people are living in really close conditions, have multiple siblings, you know, they they have it can get into uh, fecal contaminated drinking water is a is a major source. And when people drink this water, it it transmits it very easily. But if the mother has it, it can transmit to the baby and then set set up shop basically in your stomach, attached to the lining of your gut. And it produces a, a high pH barrier around itself, which if you think about, there aren't too many bacteria that can survive in the stomach acid. It's extremely high pH, like sulfuric acid down there. But this H. pylori, since it's been around so long, it has evolved a method to produce this, this high pH layer around it and protects it from the stomach acid. And what it does is it gets down in there. It sticks to the mucosa that's lining or the stomach lining, and it dissolves that mucus layer and it bores down and attaches to our stomach lining. And it it causes a cascade of inflammatory events and can cause an ulcer because now it's dissolved that, that lining and allowed that sulfuric acid pH down there to literally burn our stomachs. So that's how it all happens. It's not, it doesn't, we don't get it from, you know, hurry, worry, and curry, if you will, (laughs) like a lot of people think. So those are all sort of symptoms of it. And, and we, you know, if you, if you have an ulcer, you really have to worry about that. But the bottom line is if you have an ulcer and you don't get it treated and the current treatment now is triple therapy with, with two antibiotics and a proton pump inhibitors, like, you know, that will reduce the stomach acid and relieve some of the symptoms but there's massive um, antibiotic resistance to those. People won't take them. It's hard to get these antibiotics into areas where they're needed. The problem being, if you do not eradicate this uh, infection, it increases your chances of getting stomach cancer a sixfold. So there's really, we're setting people up for really bad problems here because the antibiotic resistance to the antibiotic regimens is becoming so intense uh, worldwide. And what are we supposed to do about it? And so that's where the cranberry comes in. So where cranberry comes in, just like you were explaining earlier, is that it prevents or diminishes the adherence to the stomach lining of H. pylori? Well, I want to first say this, that cranberry, of course, is not a substitute for antibiotic eradication of these bacteria that if, if you are uh, having symptoms of an ulcer and an other gastritis, it, it is highly recommended. Uh, and the standard of care to go through this, this rather rough um, antibiotic regimen to try to kill the bacteria. But if you're at a point where you are positive for H. pylori. They have breath tests they can do to detect the bacteria in your stomach. Uh, Or you're around other people that have H. pylori infections or have ulcers. This is where cranberry can really come in because it's before the symptoms of an ulcer really kick in where you have the opportunity here to suppress the bacterial infections, not eradicate them, but suppress them. You know, it seems so simple, and yet it's hard to believe that according to the 2020-2025 Dietary Guidelines for Americans, that 
more than 80% of Americans don't eat enough fruit. You know, the goal is to have two cups of fruit a day, mostly as whole fruits, but most people don't even realize that cranberry, whether you're having it as a juice, as a sauce or dried, that each of those forms provide similar health benefits. And they just, they're just so easy to eat. I mean, and just for the frame of reference, a quarter of a cup of fresh cranberries is the same as having a third of a cup of the sweetened dried cranberries, which is the same as only a quarter of a cup of cranberry sauce. I love cranberry sauce uh, swirled in yogurt or two ounces of 100% cranberry juice. So there is is one form better than the other? I don't think so. I think that they're all equivalent, but what's what's your take on this? Yeah, well, cranberry is really interesting because it has very little natural sugar in it as a fruit. Uh, you, you think you compare it to something like oranges or, that are quite sweet or, or apples. Um, when they make 100% apple juice or 100% orange juice, the carbohydrate content and the sugar content is quite high. With cranberries, it's really, really low. So when people taste 100% cranberry juice, they kind of go, oof, it's extremely astringent and tart. But it gives you the opportunity to make a wide variety of products out of cranberry and add different sources of sweetener or if or not. I mean, some people really like the tart taste of, of the hundred percent juice I do. And I also like just popping cranberries, you know, right out of the bag or right out of the bog. I'm here in the middle of cranberry country. We just had a big harvest. So I was out there eating lots of cranberries right out of the bog, but you want to look for, for products that have at least uh, the juices, at least 27% cranberry in them. And a lot of juices are, they get kind of tricky with the labeling and they'll say, Oh, it contains hundred percent fruit juice. And it has cranberry, you know, displayed on the front of it. Well, if you, you have to become a label reader with cranberry, you'll see that, oh gosh, cranberry isn't even the first juice in there. It's, it's apple or pear juice concentrate, which is <laughs> actually sweetening it. So it, cranberry is way down the list as, as far as uh, what's in there. So you want to really go for something at least 27% cranberry or better yet um, 100% and do what you want with it. You can add it to, you know, to carbonated beverages. Uh, you can add it to your oatmeal in the morning, make smoothies, all kinds of things. And all the forms are good and have health benefits and have research backing these health benefits, because I never recommend anything unless we have good solid evidence um, for its use in people. So they've actually consumed it and seen a benefit. So I, I'm very, very picky about that because, uh, the good thing about cranberries is you can cook with them, heat them up, make juices, and they do maintain their benefits. Unlike a lot of other fruits that if you cook with them, they lose their benefits, but the, the active compound for things like UTI and H pylori and the oral cavity is a, a compound called proanthocyanidin or PAC. And it's, it's a kind of condensed tannin that, you know, it's, it's in red wine and things like that. You hear about condensed tannins, but they're different in the cranberry in that they have a different chemical structure. They have two bonds holding these chemicals together and they have very different biological effects. 
So red wine, unfortunately, doesn't have that double bond in the pack. So you can't have red wine and have it, you know, prevent your urinary tract infection or suppress the H. pylori. So <laughs> you got to kind of stick with the cranberry for that. You know, one of the things that I wanted to ask is that uh, just like with any food, are there any risks of eating too many, too many cranberries? You know, if we eat too many fruits, it could, of course, give us a stomach upset or gas or bloat or diarrhea. I'm not really talking about that. Is there anything that we need to be aware of in terms of um, interactions with other foods or drugs? Well, with cranberry, especially if you, if your choice turns out to be hundred percent cranberry juice, the really tart, tart stuff, I would recommend having that with other foods because Sometimes the high acidity, you know, can cause some reflux if you take a whole lot of it at one time and you don't need to, to have a whole lot. That's the great thing about cranberry is it's effective at normal serving sizes. So for that, for all, all these good benefits for, for cranberry, if you took a quarter to a third of a cup of this hundred percent cranberry juice in the morning, and then again in the evening, that's it. You don't have to drink eight ounces of this and end up with a reflux situation. Okay. So can you give us any kind of sneak peeks into anything new that's coming up related to cranberry research, especially as it relates to gut health or any area actually? Yeah. Well, the, the great news that, that we're sort of riding on the coattails here is there have been a series of uh, studies on H. pylori uh, clinical research looking at the suppression of H. pylori uh, that were done in the past, but they never really got to the intake levels of cranberry, the amount of packs that's necessary, um, how often you have to take it. And there was just a study uh, that was completed about a year, year and a half ago in China, very recently, with over 500 people from a rural province in China where H. pylori is really highly prevalent, they gave cranberry juice to age ranges, you know, I think it was 18 to, you know, the mid sixties is the age, age range of these people. And boy, oh boy, when, when they did a dose response effect here, they gave a dosage in the morning, they gave a dosage in the evening, and they had different levels of pack in each of these products. And what they found when they had the higher dose of packs, which was 44 milligrams in each serving, and they did that twice a day, they saw a 20% increase in the suppression rate of H. pylori in this particular population. And if you think about that, on a population basis where you're handing out antibiotics to try to eradicate these infections, if 20% of the population can sort of manage these infections through a diet-based uh, regimen and keep the, the levels down to where they're not causing a lot of problems through, through cranberry twice a day, you know, that could really help this whole antibiotic resistance issue in that it could slow the pace of resistance development down because every time you take an antibiotic, you know, you're, you have the, the, if you don't finish the whole amount of antibiotic, you know, you're, you're enhancing the chances that you're going to get resistance development. So utilizing cranberry in these populations where they have endemic levels of H pylori, um, and it's a huge, huge problem. And they, they really don't want to take these antibiotics because the side effects are, are pretty awful. Uh, they're extremely excited 
by these results. And also we've had quite a bit of interest worldwide. It's in India. They're all over this because they have a huge problem. So having this study and knowing that you need to take it in the morning and the evening and the equivalencies that we worked out were about a half a cup of the 100% juice in the morning and evening um, will bring about this effect. So they need to do these studies more in the U.S. to look at how it's going to affect the U.S. populations in Europe. But we've got a great start here with this research. And so I'm super excited to see what comes next. And I think that there will be additional clinical trials um, that will look even even more specifically on on cranberry how it's working but this is a daily thing this is something that's that you would do on a daily basis yeah I think that's the difference between how we have a tendency to uh, think about food more like trendy as opposed to daily when you look at these populations even when we talk about gut health in general talking about fermented food or kimchi or miso or yogurt. And we look at a diet in Asia, we look at the Mediterranean diet. There are so many different countries that eat food that really could be protective of their gut. When for us, it's kind of like, wow, this, I heard that miso is popular. So let me try it once. It doesn't quite work that way. So that study was fascinating in China. And I think that we need to look at other cultural foods that other populations eat on a regular basis. Very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And you do see these, these blue zones, if you will, around the world where people live really long and they're much healthier. And you look at their, their indigenous diets and, and you see patterns, you see regular consumption of, of these, of these dietary components that, as you mentioned, things like like kombucha or kimchi, sauerkraut, things that have sources of probiotics that can lead to what we call these postbiotics, or they break down the fiber that we're eating into useful components and really do lead to astonishingly elegant health benefits, if you will. You know, we, we just, I think food has been, has been underrated in its ability to keep us healthy. You know, we, we rely too much on the pharmaceutical industry to pull us out of these things. And we need to put the focus back on our gut, back on the foods that we're eating and try to reduce our stress levels along with it. Yeah. I think that that is something that doesn't necessarily get looked upon as health. You know, we look at laboratory values, but what about how we sleep? What about exercise? I, I wrote a story recently for today's show about the blue zones And it's not just about their diets. That is the easy part to adopt, but it is belongingness. It is cooking and sitting down at the table with your family. There's so much more to health than just physical health. There's also mental health. And there's there's so much more in terms of even just connection with people. So I totally agree with you. Well, thank you so much for sharing this information with us today. I think that besides being astonished about uh, being careful who you kiss <laughs> and H. pylori, um, we learned so much about cranberries and clearing up some of the confusion about the microbiome and the role that cranberry plays um, in any form in helping to keep the gut healthy. So I hope everyone listening today had as much fun as I did hosting this podcast, and I can't wait for the next one. 
Uh, stay up to date with the latest episodes of this podcast by subscribing to our show on your favorite podcast platform. And no worries if you were driving and listening to this and you couldn't take notes because you could check out the show notes for further detail. And again, I welcome you to reach out to us at Cranberry Institute. And I'm Bonnie Taub Dix on Instagram at Cranberry Institute on Instagram. You could reach us at Cran Institute on Twitter or go to cranberryinstitute.org. That is our website. So we look forward to hearing from you. Please weigh in on this topic and also let us know what you would like to hear for future episodes because we really try to meet your needs. We invite you to join us the next time where we'll be interviewing a cranberry grower and we'll dive deep into how this tiny but mighty fruit is grown, harvested, and of course brought to you right on your supermarket shelf sponsored by the Cranberry Institute. It's a not-for-profit organization founded in 1951 to further the success of cranberry growers and the industry in the Americas through health, agricultural, and environmental stewardship research, as well as cranberry promotion and education. Thank you again so much for listening and for sharing your time with us.